chapter 32. Now we come to the boundaries and the allotment of Canaan. Remember, the whole point of all of this is the promised land. And as much as Genesis is promising the promised land, it's not really the main focus. As much as Exodus is looking forward to being saved to the promised land, that is not the main focus. The main focus is being saved from their captivity and brought in the presence of God. And Leviticus is mostly about cleansing, but Numbers has been solely focused on the promised land. That is the primary focus of this entire book. And so now that we're actually here entering the land, God is going to lay out the boundaries and the allotments of Canaan. This reads like a survey document. (laughs) I mean, it literally goes, this tribe has from this mountain to this river to this mountain peak to this valley to this, and it basically lists it out in great detail. But that's the whole point, that everything's clearly delineated here. And we'll talk about, um, when we get to the book of Joshua, I'll actually spend a lot more time on what those tribal allotments actually look like physically on a map. In the process of that, we come to an interesting situation. Chapter 32, verse 1. Now the Reubenites and the Gadites possessed a very large number of cattle. And when they saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were ideal for cattle, the Gadites and the Reubenites came and addressed Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders of the community. They said, Ataroth, Dibnon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliah, Sebmom, Nebo, Bemom, the land of the Yahweh subdued before the community of Israel is ideal for cattle, and your servants have cattle. So they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for our inheritance. Do not have us cross the Jordan River. Here's the thing. Israel is camping in this region right here. This is the region that they're calling Gilead, the one that the Gadites and the Reubenites want. Now, back in Abraham's time, God promised Abraham that he would have everything from this river, the El Arash, all the way through the land of Canaan, all the way up to the Euphrates River. God promised them all of that. However, God has not granted them to have any of that yet. Right now, all that God has promised them is between the Jordan River on the east side and the Mediterranean on the south or west side, and then all the way south of Edom, all the way up to Damascus. That's all he's promised them. They're not allowed to live anywhere else. The tribal allotments that he's already detailed out are only in that territory. Anything outside of the Jordan River is considered to be outside the land. And we've kind of already talked about in the past, to be outside the land is not good. The only way they're ever allowed to be outside of the land across the Jordan River heading towards the Euphrates is when Israel has been obedient enough, they've completely taken the land of Canaan, they've turned it into the garden, so to speak, and God has then given them permission to expand even more. But the thing is, they're not allowed to expand if they can't clean up their own backyard yet. And so the reality is because they never, ever, 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 ever will completely control all the land between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, 
God will never, ever allow them to expand past the Jordan River. So he has made it very clear that Israel is the camp in between these two bodies of water. Now part of that is there's a big valley here, and that valley, if you are separated among that, that makes it very hard to defend this land. This land where the Amorites and the Ammonites are is a very hard land to defend. And when these people are as inexperienced as they are, and they're not really big enough, one of the things that God's going to say to them in Deuteronomy is you're not going to take the land completely all at once, lest the land and the wild animals overtake you and overwhelm you, because there's not enough of you to control the land. So if there's not enough of them to control this land to keep the land from overpowering them, then there's definitely not enough of them to camp on the eastern side of the Jordan River and protect the entire promised land from a very difficult land to protect. And so this is totally not logical, not feasible for the security of the nation. Second, to have a giant rift valley between you and other tribes, that breaks down unity. I mean, all of you know well enough that no matter how close of friends you are with people from college or whatever youth group, church group you were ever, ministry you were in, and you work side by side, when those friends get called across the country or just even to the neighboring state, your friendship begins to break down because geography is a credible enemy to close friendships. And we live in a day and age of Skype and texting and, and telephones and all that kind of stuff. And even then, just a mere like four-hour drive can begin to um, destroy a friendship or um, make you just fall apart over time, let alone pre-technology and you've got a giant rift valley. And we all know that most people tend to just stay where they're comfortable rather than explore out, and especially in the ancient world where travel is difficult. So unity is by far one of the most important things to Yahweh. And God has not allowed them. They're not big enough yet. They're not faithful enough. And they haven't cleansed the land of Canaan enough to be able to grow and expand yet. And so he doesn't want them to live there. But despite that, Gad and Reuben look at this land and say, Wow, this is really nice land. It'd be really nice not to have to cross the Jordan. It'd be really nice to set up camp here and set up our animals. Now, this seems to suggest that Gad and Reuben uh, have larger flocks than maybe everybody else, that they seem to think that they need all this land. So basically, they have called, asked, can we live where God has not allowed us to live? Verse 6, Moses said to the Gadites and the Reubenites, must your brothers go to war while you remain here? Why do you frustrate the intent of the Israelites to cross over into the land which Yahweh has given them? Your fathers did the same thing when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And when they went up to Eshkol Valley and saw the land, they frustrated the intent of the Israelites so that they did not enter the land that Yahweh had given them. So the anger of Yahweh had kindled that day, and he swore, because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of them, 20 years old and upward, who came from Egypt, will see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." except for Caleb, son of Jephnu, and the Kenizzites, and Joshua, son of Nun. For they followed Yahweh wholeheartedly. So Yahweh's anger was kindled against the Israelites, and he made them wander in the wilderness for forty years until all the generation that had done 
gone, done wickedly before Yahweh was finished. Now look, you are standing in your father's place, a brood of sinners, to increase still further the fierce wrath of Yahweh against the Israelites. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will be the reason for their destruction. Harsh. This shows you how seriously you should take this. Because Moses' first response is, are you intentionally trying to keep us out of the promised land? We are finally here at the promised land after 40 years. And you go and pull something like this. Not only that, he says you're just like your fathers who committed the greatest act of unbelief other than the golden calf that has ever been committed in the history of Israel. Wow, how's, how's that? I mean, you thought it was bad when people me said you're just like whatever when people are sinning but this is like the worst thing that's ever happened in the bible so far other than the fall and the golden calf and moses says you're just like them and then he calls them a brood of sinners what's a brood what's called a brood usually vipers snakes he refers to them as serpents the the, the serpent who tempts you into doing evil and going against god like Moses is not happy about this. And I can just say, he's like, wow, we just asked for like some extra land. But that shows you how serious this is. They're literally saying we want to dwell outside the land. And to be outside the land is to be outside of life and the covenant. And this is a very important thing you understand. There is no life. There is no blessing outside the land. And that's going to be beaten into their head all throughout the First Testament. So much so that when they disobey God, he's going to kick them out of the land. And they're literally asking to live outside the land because it looks really green. And it's a lot easier than going into the land. And Moses is incredibly upset with them. And he goes on this long tirade. And I know you feel like, wow, that's, we already read all that. Like, that was like a whole couple of chapters and we spent forever talking about it. Like, why did he have to go into so many details? And sh- Because that's his tirade. That's how angry he is. That's how much he's trying to say you're doing the exact same thing. Are you going to literally make us wonder in the wilderness for 40 more years because of that? That's what he says. Are you trying to frustrate our entrance into the land again like your fathers did? This should let you know how serious of a request this is. So verse 16, Then they came very close to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our flocks and cities for our families, but we will maintain ourselves in armed readiness and go before the Israelites until whenever we have brought them to their place. Our descendants will be living in the fortified towns as a protection against the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every Israelite has his inheritance. For we will not accept any inheritance on the other side of the Jordan River and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. Now they see that now this is a huge commitment. They say we will build our homes and our sheepfolds here across the Jordan, and we will leave our women and children there, so to speak, but we ourselves will go and join the other tribes and help conquer all of Israel. And we ourselves will never return home until that conquest is finished. So they promise to not frustrate the entrance 
of the promised land and the taking it. They promise to fight with all their brothers, even though they want this land outside of Israel. What does Moses have to say? Verse 20. Then Moses replied, If you will do this thing, and if you will arm yourselves for battle before Yahweh, and if all your armed men cross the Jordan River before Yahweh until he drives out his enemies from the presence, and the land is subdued before Yahweh, then afterward you may return and be free from your obligation to Yahweh and to Israel. This land will be then the possession of Yahweh's sight. But if you do not do this, then look, you will have sinned against Yahweh, and know that your sin will find, find you out. So build, your, build cities for your descendants and pens for your sheep, but do what you have said you will do. So the Gadites and the Reubenites replied to Moses, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our children, our wives, our flocks, and all of our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will cross over every man armed for war to do battle in Yahweh's presence, just as my Lord says. So Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar, the priest of Joshua, son of Nun, and to the heads of the families and the Israelites and tribes. Moses said to them, If the Gadites and the Reubenites cross the Jordan with you, each one equipped for battle in Yahweh's presence, and you conquer the land, then you must allot them the territory of Gilead in your possessions. But they do not cross over with you armed. They must receive, pos- they must receive possessions among you and the Canaan. Then the Gadites and the Reubenites answered, Your servants will do what Yahweh has spoken. We will cross armed in Yahweh's presence into the land, Canaan, and when the possession of our inheritance will inherit, will be ours on the side of the Jordan River. What do you notice is missing there? Moses agrees. He didn't go to consult God. Moses makes this decision completely on his own. What Moses is afraid of is the break of unity. What he is afraid of is that they will not be an entire nation as God commanded, commanded to take possession. Maybe somewhere in the back of Moses' mind he's thinking, yes, but God did technically give this land to Abraham. But either way, he never consults God. This is a lack of trust. This is going to end up seriously breaking down the unity. And like I mentioned, one, this means that they're going to be more vulnerable because they're on the other side of the river, which means that every time an enemy comes to invade, they're usually going to come through Gilead. When you get to the book of Joshua, especially Judges and when we get to Kings, Gilead constantly becomes the invasion point. Gilead, 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 over and over and over again because they're easy to conquer. They will never defend the Jordan River because they don't have to defend the Jordan River because Gad and the Reubenites, and then later we're going to find out half of Manasseh decides to join them too. So you've got two and a half tribes there that are on the other side of Jordan. Why defend the Jordan? But the other side of the Jordan is undefendable. So the men the enemy comes in and easily conquers the Gilead, then they can just cross over the Jordan, which is pretty hard to cross over if you defend the Jordan. But if it's not defended, it's easy encroachments. And so this will forever weaken the strength of Israel. Second, once again, I told you it breaks down the unity. And two, third, spiritually speaking, two, this makes it hard to regulate the worship of those people on the other side of the Jordan because they're going to be separated from the tabernacle and the temple. And it's hard enough to make a journey from all the way north, all the way south to where the tabernacle or the, the temple is, let alone across this Jordan Rift Valley. Remember, the Dead Sea is the lowest point in the, all the earth. 
and what flows into that is the Jordan Rift Valley. So we're talking about a very low rift valley that separates them. And so there's a danger of them falling out of correct biblical godly worship as well. In fact, when we get to the book of Joshua, there's going to be concerns that they've set up an alternate religion as a result of that. What will eventually begin to happen is, like I mentioned over time, the Reubenites and the Gadites and half of Manasseh will begin to lose touch with Israel. And eventually, by the time we get to Judges, the unity of Israel will break down, they'll no longer be connected, and Israel will become weakened. And this will be one of the reasons why they'll never be allowed to expand, because they never were unified enough to take the land to then be able to be commanded to expand. Now, you need to understand this. Keep this in the back of your mind when you go into all those other books, because it's hard to list all those examples now. But as we go through Joshua and Judges and, and Samuel and Kings, you're going to start seeing this. And what's interesting is that this lack of consulting God is going to have ripple consequences that are going to go throughout all the generations to come. And automatically, before we ever enter the promised land, God's ideal for the promised land is already lost. What Moses sees is, oh, okay, that's great. You're going to at least join us for battle. That's really like the most important thing, right? No. The living unified as the image of Yahweh and a garden, that's the most important thing. The most important thing is not going into a brand new house and fixing it all up. The most important thing is living in a house day after day after day as a unified family who reflects who God is. The fixing up just makes it easier, brighter, more comfortable for that. But the fixing it up is not the point. And that's what Moses forgot. And so this is going now, and this seems innocent. Is this like a blatant sin against God as far as like idolatry or murder or the Midianite women prostitution? This just seems like, hey, God technically gave this land to Abraham. We would like to live here. And Moses is like, well, as long as you go into battle, it seems very innocent. It seems very compromising, very political. And yet it's going to be a very damaging thing. And that's what we need to understand. Sometimes the things that damage, damages our people and the generations that come are a lot of times the most innocent things. You have to realize when you go through history, the worst things that have happened to our country are not the drugs, sex, and alcohol, and that kind of stuff. The only reason that those things were able to happen were because of the innocent things like the Industrial Revolution and public schools and all, all these things that just didn't seem bad, but these things broke down our family. The Industrial Revolution single-handedly broke down the family because for the first time ever, you don't have a mother and a father at home working together with the children, educating the children together. Now the father's taken out of the home to the assembly line. And now he's separated from his family. And then now you have the wife who's at home and she has no adult companionship. So she's going crazy. <laughs> and then so she starts the women's rights movement, which is great in some ways, but then what it does is it takes her out of the house, which means somebody has to take care of the kids, so we have to create public schools. Now, I'm not anti-public schools because that's what it is what it is today. And I'm technically, I'm in a private school, but it's still the same thing as a public school as far as taking the children away. 
But the reality is now you've got mama goes one place, dad goes another place, and the children go completely other place, and you wonder why families aren't unified when they only have a couple hours together every single day. And that's what destroyed the family. And that's what then led to all this other stuff. And you need to understand, sometimes the, 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 the worst things that have happened to the culture are the things that don't seem really that evil. And what's interesting is God doesn't really come in here and say, this is bad, this is evil, because God doesn't do that most of the time in the Bible. Most of the time, he just, the narrator kind of just says, just wait, just keep reading. And as we keep reading, you keep going into the other books, it'll just start becoming obvious that this was not this great of an idea. And that's what you need to understand. We're used to narrators evaluating everything for us in modern-day literature. The narrator doesn't usually do that. The narrator usually says, just keep reading. And if you're really paying attention, you'll figure it out. And that's what you need to remember. This is one of the things you need to lodge in the back of your head. And remember that as you keep reading through the books. It seems very innocent, but it's going to destroy the people of Israel. Any questions? Comments? What does cities mean? Think of the smallest town in Ohio. <laughs> cities are just what we would consider little villages. You have to remember, like, for a long time, these cities won't even be fortified. So basically, a city is where a whole bunch of farmers will just kind of, they'll have their land, but they'll just build their houses close together. So if somebody, like, tries to invade them or attack them, at least you can, like, get together with all the other men of all the other families and try to create some kind of unified barricade. But that's really all it is. So you have to realize that basically this is how a city begins. A city begins where you basically have a whole bunch of farmers or a whole bunch of shepherds who begin to realize that they're in a world where they are not protected. And so their two greatest enemies are famine, so that when your crops die, your animals die, then there's no way to survive, and there is no government welfare for you, or when other raiders come along and attack you and steal things. And so you just start bringing your houses a little closer together, even though you're still completely alone on your land because you have massive amounts of land, but you try to build your houses a little bit closer. Even in Ohio, some places where you go, you'll see these large farms, but like the four or five neighboring farms all have their houses really close, right on the border there. They're just trying to find some kind of like, if my house is starting to burn down in the middle of the night, I can at least yell and a few people will come and help and I'm not completely on my own. So they start building their houses just a little closer. Over time what happens is that they need this help so if there's a famine, we're all in it together. If I'm attacked, we're all in it together. And then what happens over time is somebody just is greedier or more financially savvy or corrupt. <laughs> However way, I mean, there's all different ways of getting wealth, good ways and illegitimate ways. Somebody starts becoming more powerful, more wealthy. Their, their animals are doing better and they've been blessed with good crops or they know how to work the system or they're literally cheating things and they're becoming more powerful. That power then affords them a greater security. So they're able to hire more people or have more children and actually take care of, which means their numbers to defend themselves are greater or they're able to buy more land, which means their wealth to protect themselves in the middle of a famine becomes greater. Eventually, the other families are not as well to do off 
begin to look to them for greater security. Well, this person begins to say, yeah, but if I'm going to give you some of my profits when you're down, I mean, you're more likely to be down and out and need my help than I'm going to need your help because I'm wealthier and more powerful than you. Then there's certain things you have to do. Like, I want you to pay me, like, maybe taxes when everything's going good to help cover this. So they start working this system out, which means that eventually over time he's going to start becoming a lord. And these people are going to be dependent upon him. And eventually, he's going to become the state. And the state is going to be known as a city-state. And these city-states are where we're going to be have one guy or one family that's a little bit more powerful, a little bit more wealthy, or able to build the latest newest things, or able to get the big house and the new Lamborghini or whatever. Those things that you want and why do they have it and I don't kind of thing. But then you realize they decide you don't really want that because you see their lives. And um, the reality starts becoming more powerful. And so you then start becoming more dependent upon him, which means you start tolerating his evilness a little bit better because power corrupts eventually. And then that's where these cities begin to start becoming cities. So basically what you have is probably 20 or 30 families at the most who have gotten together and in a sense of protection. Over time, one or two of the families are going to end up becoming more powerful they're going to start calling themselves Lord or Master. And then eventually they're going to build a city. And the idea is if I collect taxes from you, I will build a city with a wall that you can all run to if we get attacked. And everybody will live outside the city, but you'll come in. Then you get places like Sodom and Gomorrah, which might probably are about 100 families, where now they're starting to live inside the city. And now they're starting to develop other trades. So that's kind of what we mean by just city. It's just something not really that big, nothing like what we think of today, um, just slightly a little, little bit organized. The idea of city, even when we talk about nations like Edom and Moab, there's still no like real sense of one king. That's not really going to come about until we get to Samuel and Kings. That's the first time you're going to start seeing a king. And even then, that king is usually only as good as the lords of the smaller cities that follow him, just like our medieval period in Europe. That king only had as much power as what the lords backed him on that. Um, but the lords had interest in backing him. So does it kind of help? Chapter 32, verse 33. He gets into the land assignment of what he's going to give to Gad and Reuben, and then what we'll learn is half of Manasseh. So it's in 33 through 30, or sorry, 42, that we learn about Manasseh also decided to jump in on that special deal. 